Thank you to the uh, musicians for uh, leading us. Uh, thank you also to Bob for leading uh, music last week when uh, I was out of town. Uh, my uh, plans have been detoured just a little bit. Uh, you are perhaps expecting me to preach from 1 Samuel today. I was expecting to preach from 1 Samuel today. But uh, a couple weeks ago, I got sick, and that ate into my study time. We had to cancel the Christmas Eve service because Pastor Ed was sick, too. And, um, and our family was out of town this last week and, and enjoyed some time away. So uh, I'm taking us this morning to a psalm, Psalm 84. And uh, I've chosen this psalm for two reasons. Uh, one is that it just happens to be the next psalm that I would have taught in the Sunday school class. Uh, but that's not really why I chose it. It's a psalm of aspiration, a psalm of desire for the Lord. And I think it's fitting for us to spend some time in this little portion this morning, the 84th psalm. Now, as I mentioned this past week, our family took a little road trip, and we were in one of my favorite places, which is the Central Coast, uh, particularly around San Luis Obispo area. That town, if you're not familiar, San Luis Obispo is often called Slow. And it really is a slower place to be. People like the slow life. And you get t-shirts with slow life and all of that. Large open stretches of grassy mountains and hills. There's something inviting about those stretches of road that relaxes me tremendously. And usually about halfway up the trip when those hills start to come out onto the horizon, I'll give a sigh or two and my wife knows that I've started to unwind a little bit. I look forward to those stretches of road. Now, along the way, there are places that are not so nice, places where traffic is congested, where the road is windy, where drivers aren't always so careful, and I don't enjoy those passages, but you go through them because you want to get to the destination. Maybe you have some favorite destinations that are like that, some places that you or your family have loved to go, and where you get there, there's a sigh of relief and relaxation, and yet... Along the way, there are some ugly spots, maybe some treacherous spots. And you've learned as you've traveled that over the years, where are the best places to stop and rest and to refuel and to get some food. And then when you get there, it's worth it all and you have that time away. Psalm 84 is a psalm that was written for pilgrims, pilgrims who would go down to Jerusalem several times a year. And for some of them, it would be a arduous task to get from wherever they lived down to Zion. And this is a psalm that encourages them it is worth it all. All of the effort and the expenditure and the inconvenience because there's something precious at the end and it's the presence of God himself. I'd like us at this time to read Psalm 84. It starts off with a heading that says for the choir director on the Getith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird also has found a house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my God and my King. How blessed are those who dwell in your house, they are ever praising you, Salah. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. O oh, Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Salah. Behold our shield, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. God add blessing 
to the reading of his word. Now the heading to this psalm tells us it's for the choir director. It's been assigned to the musician for it to be <clears throat> sung and performed according to a schedule. It's on the gatif, which is uh, some kind of a stringed instrument, perhaps, that originated from the city of Gath, well known for its high culture. It is, more importantly, a psalm of the sons of Korah. These were Levites who had been appointed by David to lead in the worship at the temple, at the tabernacle, which would then become the temple. We can't say for certain when this psalm was written. It could have been in the days of David. It could have been all the way to the days, say, of Josiah. That was during a period in which there was a king, the anointed one, who needed the prayers of the people. And it was during a time in which the temple was functioning. So some period of perhaps 400 years. While this psalm is written by the sons of Korah, these Levites who were involved in worship, it's not written from the perspective of a Levite. That is, the, the words, the expressions are to help the common worshiper express his desire to be there at the sacred place. It's written from the viewpoint of a pilgrim. The singer is excited about coming to Zion, the city of God. I don't think we can underestimate the importance of Jerusalem as a place of worship in the Old Testament. It's very different from our New Testament worship, we are, where we are not tied to places per se. Our building here has not been uh, consecrated as a holy place. If, if, God forbid, if there was a fire in this building, there's nothing to say that we can't go meet in the parking lot next week, except maybe cars. Because this place is not sacred, it's what we do that is sacred. But in the Old Testament economy, there were, there were places that were designated as holy places. The whole city was holy, and then the temple was holier, and within the temple there was the holy place, and then the holy of holies, degrees of holiness. And so as an Israelite, you wanted to literally get close to, as close to God as you could. And you could do that by going to Zion. And while that place is important, what's most important is the God who is in the center of it. God is spoken to about nine times in this psalm. And he's referred to another 13 times with titles like Yahweh, Yahweh God, the living God, the God of Jacob, my king, shield, son. All of these names, the plurality of names, speaks of the richness of the way that the psalmist views the Lord. He has no static view of a little God. He is a great God, and there's not enough words to describe who he is. This is a psalm that is full of blessing. Three times there are blessings pronounced on those who come into the Lord's presence. In verse 4, there's a blessing on the Levites who live there all the time. In verse 5, there's a blessing on the pilgrims who have determined to get there. And verse 12, there's a blessing on all those who trust in God. And throughout this psalm, there are some really rich word pictures. Some of them are metaphors, not to be taken literally. There are tender descriptions like the swallows and the birds who have found a home at the tabernacle. Much of this psalm is in the form of a prayer, although on occasion the psalmist talks to others to encourage them as well. But all of them spoken within the idea that God is listening and watching. And what we learn from this psalm is that the God we love to worship gives us a pilgrim's mindset of eagerness, endurance, and expectancy. And I think this is a wonderful theme for, it, for, for us to begin this year with. That we need to have a pilgrim's mindset. And having that will produce in us eagerness to get to God, endurance to do what the Lord has called us to do, and expectancy that the Lord's blessing is there for us. A psalm like this has a lot of application to us, even as New Testament believers. Um, it fires within us a resolve to come to temple. You know, we don't go to a place that's a temple anymore, but you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, said the Apostle Paul. You as a church, we as a church are a sanctuary. And this, so a psalm like this ought to fuel our fire of devotion to be committed to the church of Jesus Christ. And I think on a larger scale, on a longer scale, it fuels our persistence as, we making, as we're making our pilgrimage 
to the ultimate temple, to the very presence of God in glory. Did you notice that in this psalm there are three times that the little word, a couple times that the word salah shows up? You see it there at the end of verse 4, and you see it at the end of verse 8. This is a, some kind of a Hebrew musical notation. That it, it doesn't mean pause, but in this case, these are the breakpoints. There are three sections to this psalm. Verses 1 to 4 is about the ambition to go to Jerusalem. Verses 5 through 8 are about the difficulties in getting to Jerusalem. And then verses 9 to 12, there's the delight in having arrived there and enjoying the company of others who've come to worship God. The God we love to worship gives us a pilgrim's mindset of eagerness, endurance, and expectancy. And here's what we'll see this morning, that uh, the worship of God, the worship of the God we love, should, number one, fill us up with eagerness, and two, firm us up with endurance, and three, fill us full with expectancy. Let's look at the first of those that we see in verses 1 to 4. Worship of God should fill us up with eagerness. And these four verses are going to break up into two parts. They bubble up with anticipation. There is a holy love that is expressed in verses 1 and 2. And that holy love starts off with an exclamation in verse 1. How lovely are your dwelling places O Lord of hosts. And, and, and the term lovely here doesn't mean pretty, dainty. It means dearly loved. There are some things that aren't dainty, that aren't pretty, but you love them greatly. There might be something that your mother or your father has handed down to you and it's worn and beat up, but it's, it's dearly loved by you even though it doesn't look so lovely. No, the house of God's dwelling was not a dainty place, but it was dearly loved. The psalmist longed to be anywhere he could to get close to the presence of God. And what made it so dearly loved wasn't the architecture and the well-kept grounds, but it was the architect, the God who was in residence in that place. He refers to the Lord here as, O Lord of hosts, Yahweh of armies, a title speaking of his immense power and his sovereignty. And yet the mighty one who waged war on the earth and brought about his plan had a home on the earth. One place in the world where you could go and know that you were literally close to God. And that made everything about that place dearly loved. No place like it on earth. He gives an explanation of, this, of these feelings in verse 2. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Now, now the courts of the Lord, these are not law courts. Uh, this is not the people's court or something like that. These are the courtyards, the large patios, the esplanade that would be out in front of the sanctuary where the throngs of people would gather. You know, an Old Testament worshiper, there was no building that they went into. The building was reserved for the priests. And the inner sanctum was only for the high priest once a year. So most of the worship that happened at the temple was outside, out in the courts. Uh, and so there's things like Psalm 100, enter his gates with thanksgiving and in his courts with praise. And he can't wait to get there. He longs for the courts of the Lord because that's where God has chosen to make his presence uniquely known. In ancient homes, you know, the custom was that the homeowner would come out into the courtyard to greet his guests. And in God's house, that's where the Lord met with his people. What moved the psalmist most, though, and what got him moving to Zion wasn't the residence and the nice architecture, but the resident. In fact, look at the last line of verse 2, the living God. My heart and my flesh, he speaks about himself, my soul, my heart, my flesh. My, his whole being is given over to worshiping the Lord, the one who gives life. I've longed for, that is, craved, I've yearned, that is, I've exhausted myself. This is different, by the way, from then Psalm 42. I want you to flip back to Psalm 42. 
we sang part of Psalm 42 earlier in our service. This is also a song, of the, a song by the sons of Korah. In the Psalms, we find the first couple times the Psalms, their Psalms are included, they're focused on getting to the sanctuary. And here in Psalm 42, the psalmist is at pains because he can't get there. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Here is a, uh, verse 4, these things I remember and I pour out my soul within me for I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with a voice of joy and thanksgiving and multitude keeping festival. And the problem in Psalm 42 is he can't get there. He is prohibited by his circumstances, maybe by his enemies who taunt him, but his heart's desire is to be there. Hmm. What a desire to be in the sanctuary. And this is a desire that you and I need to have as well. Now, we don't set up holy places, as I've said, here in the New Covenant Church. God's people are the place of his residence. So there's a change in that regard. We, you, you can go sit in our parking lot all week long, and you won't be any closer to God than you would be in your living room. But there is something valuable, spiritually valuable, about being here as the sanctuary of God. Yes, God is in your heart if you're a believer and he goes with you wherever you go. But there's another sense in which he is here now in a in way that he is not when we scatter. Do you long to gather with God's people? Is it something you value and you desire? Is it one of the great priorities of your life? Now, I know there's times that we can't come and we want to come. You might be sick, you might be traveling. Sometimes there's commitments that come upon you beyond your control. But is it the desire of your heart to be close to the Lord in the presence of those who know him? There's a holy love that the psalmist expresses here. And then, uh, verses 3 and 4, there's what I call holy envy. You say, well, that sounds a little odd to be talking about holy envy, but there is such a thing. There are two things in verses 3 and 4 that the psalmist envies, that he wishes were true of him. And the first is a very picturesque thing, the nesting birds at the sanctuary in verse 3. The bird also has found a house, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young, even your altars. O oh, Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Swallows and sparrows and other small birds are notoriously known for making nests wherever they can get a, a beak hold, wherever they think is safe. And nowadays, stores and shops spend a lot of money and go to great lengths to put up barriers to keep, prevent avian squatting. Maybe at your house, too, you've worked to keep away some unwanted birds, but... If they're in a place where it's not an inconvenience, it's, it can be fun to watch nesting birds who have uh, smuggled away uh, into the, on the edge of the building. We have some feathered friends who found a corner of our, our uh, back porch, and we make sure it doesn't get out of hand over there. But uh, a couple times a year, it's fun to watch the little baby birds hatch. Down south of us, Mission San Juan Capistrano has been long famous for being a refuge for swallows, for the uh, cliff swallows who... Uh, have migrated there for centuries and uh, the story is told that uh, the shopkeepers whenever they would see those little mud nests being put up on their uh, under their eaves they were swatting them down and the, one of the priests from the mission said what are you doing with that and so supposedly all the all the swallows followed him to the mission where they now go every year well I think that's a little bit uh, legend but uh, they do nest there and around the temple grounds, there were places for birds and the eaves of the buildings and the rocks and the trees that were near the altars. God's sanctuary became a sanctuary for them. This is a barn swallow, the kind that are common in Israel. And in this wistful moment, the psalmist wishes he was like one of those birds. 
because those little birds are always near God's presence. No one shoes them along. You know, if you were a pilgrim, there were times, things were regulated, there were huge crowds. You couldn't get all everybody on the patio at once. In fact, later on, the verse talks about standing at the gate of the Lord, meaning that it seems to mean he's waiting to get in. He's got to wait his turn. Uh, but these little birds, they don't have any cues to follow. There's no time limits. And when the festival's over, they don't have to leave. They get to live close to God's presence all the time. He wants to be like that if he could. Birds are small, defenseless animals, but they have a refuge in God's house. And look at the bonds of love that the psalmist feels for the Lord. This, this mighty uh, sovereign one, this Yahweh he is also, as he says at the end of the verse, uh, my king and my God. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, you know, has fought to bring peace. The Lord of hosts fought for Israel and brought her into that land and set up that place where he would meet with his people. And as the Lord's war plan unfolded over the centuries, the Lord of hosts went to war to win you and me, to make it possible for you and me to come into God's presence, not to any particular place, but through a person, through Jesus Christ. The Lord of war is our God and our King and the one who welcomes us into his presence. We have closeness with God because he fought for us. And we have a place as sure as these little birds do. There's holy envy for these uh, nesting birds. And also a holy envy expressed in verse 4 for the resident workers of the sanctuary. Verse 4, How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Salah. Those who dwell in your house. So this is not talking about the pilgrims who come there on the holidays, three great times a year and other times. But these are about the resident workers, the Levites and the priests, who would live in Jerusalem for a portion of the year. Now, they would not be in the, the sanctuary itself, but adjacent to the sanctuary, there were other buildings that were constructed to house the priests and the Levites. They had a joy of worshiping God every single day, being close to his presence every single day. Now, priests and Levites worked on a rotation schedule. There were too many of them, that, you know, it was an entire tribe of the nation. There were too many of them for them to all be there at one time. And so that's why there were Levitical cities throughout the nation. So most of the year, if you're a Levite or a priest, you lived in your regular town. But there was a schedule, a rotation, and you would come down to Jerusalem, or I guess actually go up to Jerusalem, and for a period of days, weeks or months, depending on your rank, you would be in service living there. It was the high point of your year to live and serve in Zion. And by means of this rotation of Levites and priests, God was constantly being praised there on the earth in the morning and the evening sacrifices and all of the other sacrifices that people would bring to them, shadowing in a, in a way, in a smaller way, what's always happening in heaven as the angels do not cease day or night saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. So the psalmist wishes he was like one of the Levites who was stationed there. This is a kind of a godly envy. And again, this psalm is written from the viewpoint of a pilgrim. Uh, so uh, if you were a Levite, of course, you were born into that position. There was no calling to ministry in the way that we think of, except perhaps for prophets. But you could not just decide if you were from the tribe of Ephraim, well, I'm going to become a priest. You can't do that. You're not a Levite. But you might have within you a desire to do what they did, even if you can't. And that's what's being spoken about here. Sometimes Christian people develop a desire for ministry, a heart for ministry, even though they're not called to do that particularly. Uh, they think fondly of the work of pastors and teachers and those who serve the Lord. Uh, and they almost, think, they almost wonder, is the Lord calling me to do that? 
There are great joys in ministry, to be sure. That the time, one of my greatest pleasures, and I, th I speak, I th I'm sure, for Pastor Red and Pastor Bald as well, is the in-depth time in the Word of God, to be able to study without distraction. Uh, opportunities to more deep, be deeply involved in worship. The joy of seeing people changed by the Word of God. These are real high points of life. These, to be involved in ministry, to have a heart for that kind of thing is a desire that comes from God. In fact, it's one of the, one of the first things that Paul talks about. And how can you tell if someone should, ought to be a, an overseer, an elder in the church, 1 Timothy 3.1. If any man desires the office of an overseer, he desires a good thing. That is a good, godly desire. Now, desire alone doesn't qualify someone. There are other qualities, that qualifications that need to be met. And there might be situations in life that would prevent someone from pursuing that kind of service. But you can have a heart for ministry and for the work of ministry even if you're not called to do it. That's what this prayer is like. I, I wish I could live there and work there like they do, but that's not what God's called me to do. He's got a holy envy, and so he does what he can to support that ministry and to fulfill his role as well. Worship of God should fill us up with eagerness, eagerness to involve ourselves deeply in the things of God and to draw as close to God as we can. Come with me now to the middle portion of the psalm, verses 5 through 8, where we see how the worship of God should firm us up with endurance. So verse 4 suggests that there was a great blessing for the worship leaders the Levites and priests. Verses 5 to 8 is going to focus more on the common worshipers. Blessing isn't only for those who are in full-time ministry. No, no. These verses list out blessings that God gives to all those who come before him. And it paints a very vivid picture and even in some ways a cryptic picture of how hard it could be for some pilgrims to get down to Jerusalem. There are some wordings, some phrases here that are metaphorical and perhaps that view all of life as sort of a pilgrimage. But look with me now in verse 5. Here is a resolve to get to God. A resolve to get to God. The psalmist says, How blessed is the man whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. A blessing is prayed on the person who strengthens himself in God, to go on what will be, for some of them, a difficult journey, especially for Hebrews who are coming from the north country down. It could take some pilgrims, it could take them weeks to get down to Jerusalem, depending on how remote they were. It was hard, but they knew God would make a way. Going to Jerusalem for the festivals was commanded in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 16, three times a year, the men in particular, were to make their way to Jerusalem for things like the Feast of Tabernacles and other great festivals. Obviously, some people would be exempted. Obviously, some people were not well or there were great distresses that prevented them from going. But if you could go, you must go. And here's a blessing for those who have it in their hearts to get there, regardless of the price. The road to Zion it's a lot easier to travel when the way is first paved within your heart. And that's the idea there, who's, in whose hearts are the highways to Zion. A love for God, you see, paves a highway in your heart. God gives you a heart to be on the path for God's glory, to expend yourself, to endure, and to anticipate what comes ahead with the blessing of God. Here is... A blessing on the people who feel like worshiping God. You know, we ought to worship God whether we feel like it or not. Our feelings ought not dictate whether we serve the Lord or we don't serve the Lord. It, it's not hypocritical for you to serve the Lord, to come to church even on a Sunday when you don't feel like it. It's hypocritical to say you feel like coming <laughs> and you come, but it's not hypocritical to, go, to struggle against your feelings. But we don't want to live our Christian life entirely, they, well, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do any of this. That's not where we want to live. 
That may be our struggle, but that ought not to be the end. We have to pray that our feelings would come in alignment with our commitments. That's having this highway of the heart to do what the Lord has called us to do. And you'll notice in verse 6 that there is rejoicing on this difficulty, in this difficult path, despite difficulty. Rejoicing despite difficulty. This is perhaps the most difficult verse to translate and to interpret. Let's see what we can unpack from it. Verse 6, passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. There's nothing, the word joy, rejoicing is not here, um, but there is nonetheless this sense that God is bringing something good out of something that is hard. Some of your versions might read this verse differently. Uh, in fact, uh, the, the, you've heard the expression, the veil of tears. Have you ever heard that before? God sometimes takes us through the veil of tears, the valley of tears. That is one translation that comes from this verse because the word baka, one of its meanings is weeping. It's hard to know exactly what the imagery is here um, because the word baka can mean weeping. It can also mean, would you believe, mulberry trees. <laughs> and there are some valleys in Israel where they are dry and arid and there are mulberry trees. Mulberry trees often drip a sap. The trees look like they're weeping and that's why the same word is used for both things. The image seems to be that they're passing through a hard place a dry place, an unpleasant place. The road is hard. There's little water. It's enough to make you cry as a traveler. And remember, these people are not traveling in four-wheeled cars. They're walking by foot. And there are stretches of the road that are not fun to go through. It's like on your, going to your vacation spots. There's a few places you just want to speed through and hope your car doesn't break down. These pilgrims will have to pass through, some have rendered it, dry valley. And yet, even in those hard places, God gives them the blessings of provision. They make it a spring. No rain, no rivers, no water we can find. We'll dig and find some water if we have to. And sure enough, the travelers who are resilient and make effort, they find that there's some provision for them that was hidden away. And after that's all done, God rains down blessing on them, filling the ground with rain. Very picturesque image of people who persevere, who rejoice that God provides for them even when it seems hard. You know, when you have difficulty traveling enough times, Maybe you've got some place you want to go, and every time you go, you have some, right? My car always breaks down on that pass. Or uh, maybe we should stop going. I'm sure there were Israelites who got tired of these journeys three times a year, no less. Why, don't we, why do we keep doing this? It's so hard. There was a blessing, though, for those who persevered. God would provide for them, even if they had to work hard to look for it. Going through this valley refers not only to pressing on to get to festival, but I think in a, in a more picturesque way about the difficult passages of life. You know, the psalmist, the, the Hebrews viewed uh, any time between festivals as kind of a pilgrimage. Either you're going to Jerusalem or you're going away from Jerusalem so you can go back to Jerusalem. And there were dry, difficult patches of life in between that as well. But God is present there to help his people in the hard spots. God's blessing comes to you not just when you're with great crowds of worshipers and the music is wonderful and the word is stirring and your heart's on fire. God is with you when you're alone, when you're being faithful, doing what God has called you to do. When you're on your way to doing things for the Lord and you're finding obstacles, God's blessing is there too. Verse 7 continues this idea about resilience in the jarring journey. Verse 7, they go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. From one obstacle, overcoming one obstacle to overcoming another obstacle. 
God strengthens them the more they go along. The more adversity they face, the stronger they get. Isn't that just what God does with us in trials? Isn't that, I should say, what God desires to do with us in trials? When we pass the test of our trials, we find that there's a spiritual strength we gain that we could not gain any other way. And ultimately, for these worshipers, they get to Jerusalem. They appear before God. They make, their, they make the roll call, stand there in the throngs and sing God's praise and delight in all of the sacrificial worship that's taking place. You know, every trial on the journey to get to Jerusalem was an opportunity to turn back. But every time they would press on, they'd grow stronger. Every pilgrimage they took made the next one easier. Everyone with this sort of resolve will make it and be welcomed there in God's court. I think the Apostle Paul might have had this verse in mind when he writes in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, about how we see the very presence of God reflected in Jesus Christ. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. The more we faithfully pursue the Lord and seek his face, the stronger we grow and the more glorious our life before the Lord becomes as we come to know him more. Of course, there were people in ancient Israel who just couldn't go. There were senior saints who could not make that travel. There were those who were ill. There were those for whom some great distress had come upon them. Maybe they were prevented by other people from going. Homebound saints needn't feel that there's no blessing for them. Because what's most important, as we're seeing in these verses, is that the highway is in your heart. Look at verse 8 and the reliance on the covenant God that is expressed in this prayer. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Salah. I think this is the prayer of the psalmist as he's on the journey, making it through these hard spots, pleading with God to help him to get there. He calls God, O Lord God of hosts, Yahweh, God of armies, the mighty God who had fought for Israel in the past will surely help me He'll surely help me to do, to fulfill my commitments. He is the God of Jacob. So oftentimes in the Psalms when Israel is referred to as Jacob, it's highlighting the people as being needy and broken. It is with broken Jacob that God renewed the covenant that had been made with Abraham. Our covenant God loves to help weak people. And so the psalmist appeals to God to help him complete his commitment to get to Zion. These may be the words as he's going through Dry Valley. His faith is fueled not only by the promises of God and the past experiences, but also by prayer in the present. Sometimes there's things that we've committed to do for the Lord, and we just feel like we are out of energy. We don't have the oomph anymore, and we need to pray that the Lord would fuel us to see through what we've committed to do. Worship should firm up our endurance. And the last portion of the psalm, verses 9 to 12, teaches us that the worship of God should fill us full of expectancy. In these last four verses, the psalmist has made it to Jerusalem, and he offers a prayer for the king. He offers uh, expresses thanks for being in God's presence and begins to think about what life will be like when he leaves this place of pilgrimage. Look how verse 9 is about the plan of, um, of God's protection. The plan of God's protection. Behold our shield, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. Notice how he changed from uh, my shield to our shield. He's praying on behalf of the whole nation here. The anointed, the anointed one, the individual, would be the king. Every king of Israel, a descendant of David, was anointed, appointed by God to be the regent. And 
here the Lord uh, is, is called upon to protect the king. Now, maybe that seems to you to be kind of out of place. How did this guy end up in the psalm? <laughs> what does this have to do with anything we've been talking about? But if you think about it, the chief job of the king of Israel was to lead the nation in the ways of the Lord, to protect the realm so that the worship of God would, would flourish. If the king falls, the kingdom likely falls too. If the kingdom falls, Jerusalem as a place of worship grinds to a halt. In fact, that's what would happen in the year 586 when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. Verse 10 we'll look at in a moment, mentions that there are wicked people around who don't care about the worship of God, who perhaps have their own plans for Jerusalem and what should be done there. Imagine if these kind of people got control of the temple. Well, you know, you can go to the New Testament and you can find out there were wicked people who got control of the temple. And look what they did with the Lord of glory. The psalmist knows that the nation needs spiritual vigilance and so he prays that the Lord would protect the king because in protecting the king, it protects the freedoms of the people to worship the Lord. The Apostle Paul takes this concept and applies it to Christians praying for their secular leaders. He says in 1 Timothy 2 verse 1 that prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks, uh, petitions should be made for all men, especially for, uh, especially for kings and those who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and tranquil life in all godliness and honesty. We need to pray for even secular rulers above us, partly so that our ability to worship God will be unhindered. I'm glad that we have a uh, legal system that we do and that we have, in some ways, a strong Supreme Court, but you know, that doesn't guarantee anything. We must be vigilant in prayer before we're vigilant about anything else. And there are saints around the world who are facing tremendous hostility in, in walking in the ways of God and being faithful to his word. Must be committed to prayer for God's protection. In verse 10, the psalmist speaks about our joy in God's presence. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. That little word for at the beginning links this verse with the previous one. It helps us understand why there is a prayer for the king. You see, there are wicked people all about who don't give a rip about God, who don't go on pilgrimage, who don't keep the holidays, who don't keep the law, who are covenant breakers. And you know what? In many ways, it's a lot easier for them. The psalmist wants to have full freedom to be in God's court, and there he stresses how valuable it is to him in contrast with the wicked. And notice there's actually a number of contrasts in this verse. There is standing versus sitting that's mentioned. I would rather stand at the threshold of, than to dwell or to sit, is the Hebrew word, in the tents of wickedness. Uh, here is, uh, he is one among many in the Lord's house. I, it's, this is often translated, I would rather be a doorkeeper, but literally the Hebrew term is, I would rather stand at the threshold. Stand at the threshold. And I suggested to you earlier what is implied by this is at festival, Passover, tabernacles, things like that, only so many people can fit into the courtyard. So you have long periods of waiting. Well, we know what it's like to wait, <laughs> sometimes long periods. Uh, not always all that comfortable. But I'd rather be stuck standing there waiting for my turn than to be out in the tents of the wicked, taking it easy, enjoying life unencumbered by requirements because there is no better place to be than God's house. And notice that God's house is contrasted with the tents of the wicked people, which hints at the fact which of these is the more permanent, which of these is the more eternal. There's no better place than being in God's presence. When the psalmist isn't there at Zion, he's surrounded by wicked people. 
and a thousand days of living in their tents could never produce the kind of joy that one day brings, standing, waiting to get in to go to the courtyard to sing and to worship with the throngs. A thousand days of sin, of indulgence, of godlessness are no match for one day of sacred delight in the things of God. Because if the highway is in your heart to walk in the ways of the Lord, you have a new set of affections, a new set of desires that by God's grace you can feed and fan into a flame where you find delight in things you never would have before. And, and more and more your desire for sin and the things of wickedness is diminishing. This ought to be the desire of our hearts throughout this year, to train our appetites, to love the things of God more and more, and to love the things of the world less and less. The expectancy that he has of the joy is great. Look with me now in verse 11, the expectancy about the provision of God's grace Verse 11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Why is it so wonderful to be in God's presence? Well, the four helps to explain it. Four, here's why. Look what God is to us. God is a sun. It's the only time in the Old Testament where the God is directly called this. It suggests he is the source of warmth and light and life itself. He's a giver and he's a protector as well. He's the shield. And our sun shield God, here's what he gives. It's not so much about physical light and physical warmth. It's grace and glory. These are things that the wicked can't give you. Living a, a sinful, worldly life, uninterested in the things of God, will not give you grace or glory. You know, going on pilgrimage was expensive. Imagine in your schedule if three times a year you had to stop everything and plan for a journey of some distance where you had to pack, pack food, pack supplies, Try to take care of things before you left and then go and then come back and do that again and again throughout the year. Took away time from the farm. Uh, and you know what? There were plenty of Israelites who just didn't even bother. And their homes would be passed on the way. Think of all of the, the pilgrims going down the roads looking at the Israelites who are not pilgrims. Hmm. And you start to think, well... Uh, I mean, the earth hasn't swallowed up and eaten them yet. Um, is it worth it? Oh, yes, it is. Because there are things you gain in obeying that you cannot get any other way. The wicked saw these things as an imposition. The psalmist saw it as richness. God would more than make up any losses when they would be faithful to worship him as he'd commanded. The verse ends by saying something God won't do. No, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Uh, we have a God who gives abundantly, above, beyond what we ask or think. God can make up our, what feel like our losses in ways we can never imagine. Those who walk uprightly. Notice how there's a little word play. These, these are pilgrims who are literally walking but more important than keeping this, the calendar and getting down to Jerusalem is their daily life of walking before the Lord. Going to meetings and being with God's people is of no value if it doesn't change the way you live. So the true pilgrim, the one with the highway in the heart, is the one who walks with God, not just at festival, not just on holidays, but all the time. Someone was sharing with me recently about how attendance at churches often swells at the holidays, Christmas and Easter. You know, in some parts of Christendom, these are considered holy days of obligation, and you must go, even if, you know, you're not interested at all. There's a joke that, you know, someone said to the pastor one time, I'm getting tired of singing Away in a Manger, and up from the grave he arose. To which the pastor said, well, if you'd come some other Sunday than just those two, you might hear something else. 
it's important that we have a walk that matches our showing up at church, that every day we're walking uprightly in the ways of the Lord. And there is a provision of grace for those who make that commitment. And look at verse 12, the prospect of God's blessing. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. Here's the third and final pronouncement of blessing in the psalm. First it was on temple workers in verse 4, and verse 5 it was on pilgrims, and here on all true believers. After the pilgrimage is over and the psalmist has gone back to his home, he still has a path to walk, a God to walk with, to trust day by day. And there's blessing as surely on you then as those special times when you gather with everybody else. The God we love to worship desires to give us a pilgrim's mindset of eagerness, endurance, and expectancy. There's a hymn that is, uh, used to be very traditional to sing at the close of services. I, I grew up hearing it now and then, but not every week. Blessed be the tie that binds. Is that name familiar to any of you? Blessed be the tie that binds. I see some hands. I'm not going to sing it, but I want you to listen to the, the words. There's six short stanzas. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred binds is like to that above. Before our Father's throne, we pour out our ardent prayers, our fears, our hopes, our aims are one our comforts and our cares. We share our mutual woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows the sympathizing tear. When we are called to part, it gives us inward pain, but we shall still be joined in heart and hope to meet again. That's the desire of the pilgrim, to be there with God's people as much as you can, to be there together in God's presence and to know that there is a blessing that comes upon faithfulness like that that the world can never, ever give. Father, it is our heart's desire that this year we would be those who are committed to holy things, committed to yourself, to pursuing your presence, to being with your people, to do the work of God, and we pray that you would stoke within our hearts and our minds a, a, a fervency, a love, a, uh, a holy envy for the things of the Lord that we might value it above everything else and find in you uh, a fullness and a fulfillment that we could gain no other way. Help us to deal with the temptations of the world and all the things that come out of the tents of the wicked that Tell us it's not worth it or there's no value in it. May remember all that you are to us, our son, our shield, our king, our Lord, our God, the one who gives us life. And truly you've given us everlasting life through your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.